Robert Blackburn uh, described himself as an integrationalist. And he spoke about how he believed that we were all one, you know, basically at the end of the day. And just that, you know, through that art making and print making, like because it is a collaborative process. And welcome to the 56th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world all at buyingcopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page where, if you like our podcast and you want to help keep printmaking chats in your ears, you can toss us a couple of bucks each month and get some cool thank you swag in return. Or, if you don't have a couple of bucks right now because, say, you're an American and the second stimulus package hasn't been passed yet and the fucking Senate decided to take a fucking vacation, that's totally cool, too. Times are crazy and super scary, and if you just want to listen to some people kick back and talk printmaking, get down with your bad self. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Line is brought to you by our sponsor, Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative process since 1997. Their newest exciting initiative is Speedball's Print Bossy. Working with contemporary print icons, Speedball has invited each artist to design and name an ink of their choosing. To design and name an ink of their choosing. Artists like America's printmaking sweetheart, Lily Arnold whose Cactus Blossom Relief ink is the prettiest shade of green you ever did see. It's perfect for gradients, yet bold enough to stand alone, just like a cactus in the lonely desert. Shop at speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite ink. My guest this week is Justin Sands. Justin is the workshop manager at the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop in New York City. He's been involved in the institution for 15 years, and he guides us through a thorough and fascinating history of Robert Blackburn, his contributions to contemporary printmaking, and the history of the workshop. We also talk about the ways in which those of us in the print world can recognize and address the history of racial inequality in the arts, and how the workshop strives to honor the legacy of Robert Blackburn and his commitment to integration. And of course, like all episodes recently, we taught COVID, and the ways in which the workshop is keeping going in the time of COVID and social distancing. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to take a little trip into Hell's Kitchen with Justin Sands. Hi Justin, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me. I definitely have wanted to talk to someone from Robert Blackburn's studio for quite some time. I know 
Um, you know, I'm married to a lithographer. Uh, I'm from the States originally. And so, you know, Robert Blackburn and his legacy was something that I just have been aware of for pretty much since I got started to get involved in the printmaking world. I'm really excited for the conversation. But Great. before we dive into Robert, I'm hoping that you could maybe introduce yourself so we know who we're chatting with. And you could just tell our dear listeners who you are and where you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, my name is Justin Sands, and I'm the workshop manager and master printer of the EFA Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop, which is a community print shop on West 39th Street in Midtown Manhattan. You know, we're closed now because of the, the COVID, but we're going to hopefully be opening again in August, fingers crossed, if everything goes well. Um, and then I'm also a printmaker myself, and I, you know, dabble in a bunch of different techniques. So I do some painting, I do some animation as well. And what does the EFA stand for in the Robert Blackburn studio? Yeah, so it's the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts. Yeah, so we're uh, a program of the Elizabeth Foundation. There's three programs basically within the EFA, and it's us and then the Project Space, which is a gallery that's also on the second floor. And then there's the studio program, which is about 90 artists that go um, up to the ninth floor of the building. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a really great place to be. You know, they do um, open studios once and twice a year, and it's really great to walk around and you can see like all of the artists that are working in there, you know, or at least in the before times, that's what you're right, able to do. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's all located in one, sounds like fairly large building then. Yeah, yeah, it's about a 12 floor building. Oh my gosh. And then we're also on the second floor. It's in uh, Hell's Kitchen on West 39th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. The, the address is 323 West 39th Street. Gotcha. And so could you just let people know who maybe aren't aware, just kind of starting with the basics, who was sure. Robert Blackburn? Robert Blackburn is a famous African-American printmaker. And I believe he was one of the most influential printmakers of his time. He's affected so many people's lives. You know, we do a lot of print fairs. And whenever we do print fairs and we sell our published prints, there's always so many artists that come up and they say, Bob, like, help me get my first press. Or um, he was my teacher, you know, because he also taught at a whole bunch of different universities, like teaching lithography. But really, you know, he was he was all about making uh, printmaking accessible to people and and affordable. And throughout his life, I mean, one of the main things is that he was very a very selfless person and was really just in it to help everyone else and to bring people together. And that's what you hear from everyone who, who knew him. Yeah. So do you know how he came to printmaking and how he ended up being someone who was so involved in it and someone who ended up being, you know, a, a pioneering lithographer and such sort of a cornerstone of the printmaking community in New York and beyond? Yeah, so he was born in on December 10th in 1920 in uh, Summit, New Jersey. And both of his parents were Jamaican immigrants. Um, he doesn't have much memory from the time he was there, but just remembers, you know, like it being like in the countryside there. And then he, he moves to Harlem 
And he's always interested in the arts throughout his, you know, middle school and high school years. When he's in high school, so he went to high school in Clinton DeWitt High School in the Bronx. And there, you know, he was the editor of a, the school magazine called The Magpie. And there's a lot of uh, illustrations of his that come from that period. And so he's, uh, you know, he started with painting and drawing. And then he's originally introduced to lithography in the Harlem Arts Center. So that was uh, the Harlem Arts Center is a WPA funded organization, which is um, it stands for the you know work work progress administration that was part of the New Deal and like a stimulus for you know the Great Depression basically. And so that's where he learned lithography uh, from a woman named Riva Helfond. And then he was producing, you know, these lithographs, which if you look at them online, you know, it's around like 1940 at this time. They're really, really amazing lithographs. And then he's uh, reproducing them in the magpie. So there actually are some reproductions of the um, of his lithographs from that time. And then at this time, he also gets introduced to Jacob Lawrence, uh, Ronald Joseph, who are also famous black artists that he's working with at this time. Jacob Lawrence actually, you know, works with him. He actually ends up living with Jacob Lawrence um, at a certain time, you know. So this is where he's like learning lithography and eventually from um, his initial prints, he ends up getting a scholarship to the Art Students League and meeting um, two influential teachers there that he describes really um, changed his artistic practice because before that he's doing like much more figurative work kind of, of urban life and black life um, from his perspective and then when he um, starts working at the art students league he's working with um, a teacher named Vaclav Vitasil I'm not sure if I'm mm-hmm. pronouncing that correctly <laughs> but he's, he works with him and, and uh, Will Barnett and then you could see his um, his work like starts to change and he, he also talks about how um, working with Vitasil changed his perspective on art making because he introduced like more European perspectives to his artwork. So you can see a lot of it starts becoming more abstract and um, almost like cubist in, in some of his pieces from this time. And then he's also, you know, he's working with Will Barnett and they're kind of pushing the or pushing the bounds of lithography at this time. And they forge this friendship that lasts, you know, well into the end of both of their lives. Well, Bob, Bob passed away first, but they were friends, you know, from that time. Mm-hmm. And they really explored lithography together and were, you know, started doing multicolor lithography, which at that time in America, there really weren't um, multicolor lithographs being produced to that complexity. You know, some of these prints would have up to like 13 different layers and there really aren't any like color lithographs that are printed with that complexity from this time. And so he went on to establish his his own workshop in 1947, I think. Is that correct? I've heard 1947, but I've also heard him say 1948. 1948 is usually what I go to, but I have heard some people say 1947. Okay. But yeah, yeah, he starts, um, you know, so he's been living in Harlem, like his whole life, um, except for the beginning part in New Jersey. And um, yeah, he starts it in 
1948. So he's 28 years old. And kind of in interviews, he's talked about how he wanted to like expand his horizons. And so he moves into um, 17th Street. He, he gets a loft with a, a bunch of friends. And then he also acquires his first press at that time. And then slowly, you know, he starts printing for artists. He's printing for Will Barnett at this time also, too. And then slowly the people that he's living with in this loft start leaving. And then he just keeps printing and inviting more friends to start working in the print shop until eventually it's just his own space. And then that's, you know, the beginning of the, the printmaking workshop. And, you know, I think a large uh, I think a large part of it, too, is because, you know, being a black man in 1948, I think it was really difficult for him to mm -hmm. work in other work in other print shops there. And I think that's also why he wanted to start his own thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that he could kind of, you know, make his own rules and invite anybody that he wanted to um, to come and work in the studio. Speaking to that, again, I feel like that's the impression that I've got as people sort of talk about what Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop was, particularly in, you know, the 1940s and the 1950s, is that it was really un unusual in a place that it was, it was a space in which people came together sort of across racial lines and you would have African-American and white artists working side by side in a way that you didn't necessarily really see other places. No, definitely. I mean, Robert Blackburn uh, described himself as an integrationalist mm -hmm. and he spoke about how he believed that we were all one, you know, basically at the end of the day and just that, you know, through that art making and printmaking, like because it is a collaborative process and, you know, not everybody can afford to have a press in their room that we need to come together. And so that that was kind of a space where, you know, people could just come together and work together and, you know, put their differences aside and, you know, just really I think it was for him, it was all about just finding like the truth. You know, mm -hmm. it was never it was never really about money for mm -hmm. him. It was all just about like expression and exchange of ideas between people. Um, you know, because he like he speaks about, he just believes in this in this oneness of of humanity. That's lovely, and it's I, I love that this idea that you can kind of get to it too through through labor, through working, through the collaborative process of a print shop of just having a common goal together um, that you have to communicate and work and be respectful you know, in order to get to an end product. And, and yeah, in this case, it, you know, could be a, a 15 layer lithograph or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so did he teach out of his printmaking workshop? Or was was most of his teaching going on at the universities? Yes, he was also, um, after he started the, the workshop, he worked at a number of different colleges. He, he worked at Cooper Union for a long time. He originally was hired there as a printer. Because he never, you know, he didn't have a college degree. Um, so he talks about, you know, not being able to have the ability to teach. Um, and there's an interview, you know, where he talks about how he kind of felt like he was, you know, held back from teaching positions. And he was mm. kind of kept on at Cooper Union as a, only a printer. But then Will Barnett, who also worked there, 
would say like, just, you know, hang on, just wait like a little bit longer. Mm. But I think that Bob also felt, you know, he was being used as kind of like a token black person mm-hmm. within Cooper Union mm-hmm. because he, you know, he explains about how people, you know, that like whenever somebody was visiting from like South America or, um, you know, if there was anybody like from Africa that would come in, that they would come in and, you know, say like, oh, this is Robert Blackburn. He's a teacher here, which he Uh wasn't a teacher there. And he was just a printer. But then, you know, they would say that to kind of make it look like, oh, like we're progressive. But then he actually was, you know, just a a printer there until I think late to middle 50s. But, you know, so it kind of changed from being a printer into being a teacher in the 50s. And then, you know, he also taught it um, SVA, like the School of Visual Arts, and uh, the New School. He taught at NYU. I think a lot of like while he was while he was doing this, he was, you know, this um, his community of people were also like running the print shop. You know, like mm. I think it while you know all, all throughout his like whole life, he almost had he had to um, he was like learning about art and printmaking. Um, like after school, like throughout um, high school, you know, going to the Harlem Community Arts Center on the weekends and at night at nights. And then also in the Art Students League, you know, he was he was a porter for a lot of different places and then did some kind of like design jobs. Um, he worked at like the Harmon Foundation um, on some films and things like that. And then he would, you know, go to the Art Students League at night. So I think, you know, he he talks a lot about that kind of just having to having to work to support his practice and then kind of doing it on nights and weekends. When I look at, you know, all the different places that he worked and taught and was a collaborative printer at, and on top of that, he kept up his own personal practice. It's really remarkable that someone has yeah. that much, that much, that many hours in a day or that much passion, that much drive, however you speak to it. Um, because Definitely. while he was doing all of this, he was producing his own really beautiful prints. Could you maybe speak a bit to more to his personal practice? I know you touched on that he'd been kind of influenced by more of sort of a, a European style, but maybe just speaking to it just directly so people might understand what he made uh, as an individual artist. His most well-known work is from a period in the the late 50s and early 60s where he started doing these uh, kind of abstracted still lives and and landscapes and then eventually they just become um, totally abstract but it's really you know he with his own work he didn't really addition much a lot of it is just kind of experimenting with different color compositions so, you know, we have um, in the Elizabeth Foundation, we also house um, what's left of Robert Blackburn's collection because a number, you know, like a, a large portion of it went to the Library of Congress and different organizations. Um, but so there's a number of prints that are there of his that are, you know, mostly for like educational use. So we have, you know, a lot of his proofs where you see this one stone that are, you know, multiple stones, because a lot of the prints have, you know, like up to 18 colors or, Mm. you know, 12 colors and that kind of thing. And so he's really experimenting with different color combinations a lot. And I think that's also something that is seen a lot in the workshop at this time. Um, Like there's a number 
of different artists that are also, I think, taking Bob's lead and trying different color combinations. Um, like there's also Krishna Reddy, who's like one of the founders of viscosity printing. And he also, I've seen multiple, you know, similar ideas where it's using the same plate and doing like multiple color combinations. Um, I can't really speak to if Krishna additioned, I know, I know that he did addition the pieces, but I'm not sure if it was, you know, um, the same as with Bob, where Bob really wasn't like a, um, interested in additioning mm-hmm. because there aren't like a lot of his own prints that exist. Um, and with all the people that he's helping, it's almost like, how did you even have time to, right. to do these prints? You know, like, are you just not sleeping and yeah. <laughs> staying up all night making these? Yeah, but it's really great to like to dissect, you know, the, the different proofs and see the way that he's working together. Um, so, you know, you could see that he would like counter etched the stone and then like went back in in one area and then printed it like in a green or where it was, where it was red, like in the other in the other print, but using a lot of transparency. And there's also um, I know, you know, some I don't remember where I heard it from, but um, someone also said that Bob used stones like paintbrushes. That's a really beautiful image. And so you said this was the late 50s and early 60s. And I was thinking, this is the time period where he's working for Universal Limited Art Editions and working right. with like Helen Frankenthaler and Robert Rauschenberg. And right. so he's doing collaborative printing for them as well. And at that point, that's, you know, really sort of the, the, the upper echelons, I would guess, of the New York printmaking world um, at that time. Yeah. I mean, you know, he helped, you know, Tanya Grossman, who started um, ULAE. Mm-hmm invited Bob to come and print with her and he printed their first, the first 79 editions. Oh, wow. Um, with ULAE. So he really like helped us set the standard for printmaking there and like for, for lithography. And for a lot of these artists, it was the first time that they had ever done um, lithography. Larry Rivers, I think was the first one. And then he also talks about printing with Jasper Johns, Helen Frankenthaler, you know, Robert Rauschenberg, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so he's, he's commuting to Long Island to, Bayshore in Long Island, you know, he it t- he talks about how the schedule wasn't really um, normal or like hmm. regular, you know, mm-hmm. like sometimes he would go out for a week and then come back for a week and that kind of thing. But yeah, there's really, you know, you can see in his work, there's kind of, there's a change where all it gets like even more like intricate mm-hmm. where he starts printing even more layers and with more transparency and, you know, like scraping the stone away and all types of different techniques. Yeah, he just goes really down the the rabbit hole of sort of pushing lithography to the limit of what it can do and and exploring those edges, it sounds like. Did you ever get a chance to meet Robert in person? No, so I I never met Robert Blackburn, but my my uncle actually printed there in the 70s. Okay. So I'd never, it's funny because like I have a BFA from SUNY Purchase in Westchester County. And when I got out of school, so I graduated in 2005 and I got out of school and my uncle was like, oh, you know, he knew I was a printmaker. That's like where I I found printmaking in school. And he was like, oh, I have to find the printmaking workshop for you. Like I used to work at the printmaking (laughs) workshop. And then um, he looked for, you know, he, and then he's like, oh, they closed down. Like, you know, you can't work there anymore because they're closed or whatever. And so then I actually, I started working at the Lower East Side print shop as an intern there. And then I worked for Kathy Caraccio um, as an intern. 
And then she got me a job in 2005 to open the EFA Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop, which is, you know, my first job was there was, um, you know, painting tables and like putting in windows and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing to like get the workshop to be ready to be opened. And then I never made the connection until like a year or two later where when I told him, like when he was like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm monitoring at the Blackburn printmaking workshop. Um, And then that's when I made the connection that the printmaking workshop that he worked at and the Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop were the same thing. But I didn't didn't know. (laughs) That's really funny. That's really funny. So so then it sounds like I didn't realize that there was a period then where, you know, Robert Blackburn's printmaking workshop ended and then it kind of returned is the EFA Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, he closed the workshop in, in 2001. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the workshop always had monetary problems. You know, I think and a lot of it, you know, like uh, from interviews and everything, Bob talks about how he wasn't the best businessman. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, you can understand that when you hear him talk, because for him, it's like, it's never about money. I mean, I think there was even an interview where he's like, you know, money is like the absolute opposite side of creativity Hmm. and that you know like having to think about making money will like stop your creativity but you know but then he's also at this point he's like 82 well he was 83 um when he died but when he's 81 you know his health started failing Mm -hmm. and then he knew that he couldn't like keep the workshop going so um the elizabeth foundation you know he he sold the elizabeth or he sold the workshop to the elizabeth foundation and then it was always meant to open on the second floor, which is the location that it's in now. But he got sick, and then the the second floor wasn't wasn't open at the time because it was being like rented, and they had a a lease or something until like 2005. Mm. Um, so all of the presses and everything went into the basement of the Elizabeth Foundation from 2001 until 2005. So unfortunately, he never got to see it open because he died in 2003. But then you know, the workshop opened after. So when I was doing, you know, because as a as the crack scholar that I am, I was reading his Wikipedia page before the interview. And I there was a line in there that he spent the last years of his life in the Chelsea Hotel, which was really surprising right. to me. And so I, then I went to the I went to the Wikipedia's, you know, footnote on that to read the original source and the source that they listed didn't say anything about the Chelsea Hotel. It was it was his obituary in the New York Times, and it didn't say anything about that. But it kind of implied, you know, Chelsea Hotel, of course, has this huge cultural presence and reputation within the arts community in New York City. But it also, you know, wouldn't necessarily, I don't know, be a place that you'd you'd stay if you were like quite well off, or I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it would have been like in in the early aughts, but I didn't know if there was any truth to that or if you could speak to kind of the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know um, that he did live in the Chelsea hotel towards the end of his life. And I just know that from talking to the, the people that knew him and they would have, you know, they had like a schedule where somebody from the workshop would try to go and visit him on this day or that day mm. so that, you know, because he was just there alone and he was sick. And so a lot of the, the old members would go there and, you know, like talk to him and mm-hmm. keep him company um, towards the end of his life. I don't I mean, I'm not exactly sure. You know, I know I know that he had to sell like a lot of his printers proofs towards the end. Mm-hmm. 
and that kind of thing. But he did in '90s. He also got a MacArthur Genius Award. But I, I know that he put all the money like back into the workshop and bought new presses and that kind of <laughs> thing because that was, you know, that was his mo. Yeah, I love it if you could speak to a little bit about what the Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop is today and sure. and maybe you know maybe a bit in the before four time because I'm sure it's taking up a little bit of a different <laughs> space in COVID um, yeah. but sort of you know up until recently you know in 2019 let's say what does it look like what kind of programs does it offer um, sure yeah yeah so um, there's a number of different things that um, we do at the print shop um, I've been there now for six years working as the workshop manager um, but before that, I was a monitor. So we have a monitor program there. Like, so I, w I was a monitor there for nine years um, before I started working as the manager. And the monitor program, you know, we're basically all run by volunteers. So anybody, uh, there's a, about a team of like 16 to 20 something monitors that all work four hour shifts. Well, this is, you know, in the before times. Mm -hmm. um, and for every hour, that a monitor works, you get two hours to work on your own in the studio. Mm. Um, and those hours can also be traded for classes. And then, so the monitors are in charge of, you know, letting people into the studio, like signing people up for classes, um, selling materials, like that kind of thing, like basic, you know, um, like if any, if there's anything that a member needs, then they will do that for them. So it's like watching over the communal aspect of the um, studio. And for our membership, we have about 200 and, or, you know, we usually have 250 mm -hmm. active members that, you know, we can probably have about, I would say maybe 15 to 20 people in the studio at a time normally. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the, the structure uh, of the workshop is the same as um, Blackburn's initial workshop was. Um, and the pricing is even the same, like as his workshop was in 1998. So that they took, we, we haven't changed the prices since his workshop mm. in 1998. Um, so you can be a membership for, or a member for the year for $35. Oh my gosh. And then there's different, um, hourly packages that we sell to where like the, you know, for the, it's basically like the more hours you buy then the cheaper it is per hour. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you buy you know, the more expensive, uh, we call them flexi passes. It's uh, 128 hours for $225, mm -hmm. you know, just, and we haven't raised the prices, just trying to keep it accessible to um, anyone who wants printmaking experience. Um, and then we also do classes on nights and weekends, normally, yeah. um, in-person classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, our volunteers can also trade hours to um, take classes um, they've also, the monitors have started doing like monitor to monitor classes. Hmm. You know, we're really open for, um, members and monitors to, if they have a program that they want to start that they can do that. Um, so they started a monitor to monitor program, um, where the monitors are teaching each other, you know, different techniques. And then there was also like a crit committee. I forget, they call it creative conversations. So the monitors, um, and interns also started, a group of like a, a critique group that's called creative conversations. Then we also do um, print publishing and contract printing. So we have a, a program that's called printers without presses, which handles most of the contract printing. 
And so that's um, freelance printers working in the studio. And then, um, you know, when a contract job comes in, I usually speak to the, the artist and figure out like what they want to do, or sometimes it's a gallery or that kind of thing. And then I um, price out the job and, um, you know, figure out like who would be the best for this job. Because sometimes, you know, we have like some printers that are, you know, specialize in silkscreen and some printers that specialize in etching mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And then, you know, so they're able to, the printers are able to make some money and then the workshop makes a little money from the contract printing. And then we also do publishing where we um, select artists or we select people to nominate artists um, to produce editions with. And then we um, take them to um, different fairs and try to sell the editions that we make. Do you do any kind of like outreach programs as well? Kind of trying to like going to schools and that kind of thing? Yeah, we do outreach too. Um, we want to start doing more if it's possible, but we do outreach with a lot for a lot of different, um, with a lot of different organizations. Um, in the past, we've done some, we, we try to do free classes too, um, as much as we can. So we've also, we've offered a number of um, free classes with MoMA, we did some classes for, they had a Degas exhibition and we did mm-hmm. um, a series of like 18 monotype workshops with them. Um, and then there was also the Charles White exhibition who Charles White also printed with Robert Blackburn. Mm. And we did, we had like a number of teachers come from the workshop and we did um, some dry point workshops at, at MoMA. And then we've also worked with the Studio Museum in Harlem um, they had one of Bob's prints there, and we did some pronto plate lithography classes with them. Uh, we also recently worked with the Highline Teens. I forget what the name of it exactly is, but it's um, teenagers that that are um, supported by the Highline in New York City. It's like a they have an organization, um, and they had a like the teens made their like had like a, a little like block party there on the Highline, and we were doing mm-hmm. monotypes there um i've also done i did a, a series of monotype um, workshops with the schoenberg center for research in black culture two years ago we had a we got a sukasa grant to do a workshops like a series of workshops at a senior center um and we worked at a senior center for the whole summer oh beautiful um i think it was about two years ago yeah yeah but yeah but i think we you know we want to we want to do more and go into like high schools and do some teaching there. You know, I'm always curious when people have programs when they're going out into the community and bringing printmaking with them, what's the general reaction that you get? I mean, what's the general sense of knowledge about printmaking, you know, especially when you're working with teenagers and and younger people are they excited by it? Have they heard of it before? What's, you know, outside of the print world, what do people know about what we do and how do they feel about it? It's, it's really kind of all over, the, all over the place. I feel like mm-hmm. the most common thing is people will be like, oh, I did a lino cut in um, elementary school yeah, or something yeah. like that. Uh-huh. But that's really the extent of like most people's experiences with printmaking, I think. I mean, I didn't even know about printmaking until I went to college, Right. you know like at all. I didn't understand, you know, anything about printmaking. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, people get, you know, there's always that moment of um, surprise, like when, you know, you're working on a matrix and then you run it through the press and then there's always that the aha moment yeah. that gets people really excited. Printmaking has that, that wonderful sort of performative sort of satisfying moment of pulling the paper off or, or whatever, you know, whatever you're printing on that I really feel like makes it, um, makes it such a good, uh, a good way to, to spread the word about printmaking is, is everyone gets excited, you know, even if they've been working in a studio for 70 years, every time the paper comes off a matrix. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And so, you know, sort of speaking of, you know, how you were saying that your experience with printmaking, you didn't have until college. And you were talking about how Robert Blackburn, when starting the studio, was really aware that it's difficult to get access to the equipment needed for printing. So something that I'm always interested in is a conversation around making the medium more accessible. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like you and the and the print workshop are really thinking about that and thinking about ways you can kind of bring it to the community but I'm also hoping that maybe you've got some thoughts on the ways in which average Jane and Joe printmaker on the street can help make the medium more accessible what are maybe some lessons you've learned working at the print shop that people can take can hear and sort of take to maybe their community print shop where they are or just their own personal practice I think, you know, mostly just getting out there, you know, doing as much as you can. You know, I think that we're also, you know, as an organization, like we also have, we always have in mind the idea of inclusivity and trying to, you know, have as many black members as we can, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and bringing the, the workshop into, into black communities. And I feel like we, you know, we are definitely lacking in some areas. Like, I think that we print, um, you know, all the artists that we print with our publishing are mostly all black artists or artists of color. But I think that there is still, you know, I think that times are changing or times have changed a lot now too. And even kind of the idea of an internship is like inaccessible to many black artists or artists of color. So, you know, I think that also like having all this time now to reflect, like just being home for the past three months and doing, you know, just spending a lot of time with myself and rethinking like all the things that we've, we've done and that we've been doing. um, I think that we still need to do a lot more to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why, you know, when I said like, I want to go, I want to you know, have more of an outreach program where we're actually going into like black communities and communities of people of color and, you know, teaching printmaking, but also, you know, realizing that a lot of our, a lot of our monitors and a lot of our volunteers are also white and that it's a, you know, a reflection of basically, I mean, you know, I've also been listening to a lot of um, podcasts too, but that it's a Mm -hmm. reflection of upholding white supremacy you know Mm -hmm. or like this this um that you know it's just like it permeates through all of our all of our culture and that we're i still think that we are not doing enough um to be able to make even the volunteer positions accessible Mm -hmm. you know so this is you know i mean i just think that having all this time has made 
made me realize that like, yes, we're doing a lot of our publishing um, and, you know, highlighting black and, and brown artists with publishing, but that we need to make our space like more inclusive, even, you know, even though we've, we've been doing these things that are still more, a lot more that we need to be doing. Yeah. I think that, you know, while obviously in some ways COVID-19 has been devastating to arts and arts organizations around the world, I think having that pause and mixed with this like swell of interest and support for Black Lives Matter and just thinking about racial justice in general, kind of combined with this pause that we've all had to take, really is giving people the opportunity, um, like yourself and like other arts organizers, to ask that question, which is that, you know, have I just been ticking a box? Are we actually doing the work, like the really hard work of dismantling these deep set prejudices and hierarchies and privileges that we have. And it's going to be, I think, a steep learning curve because it's the it's the water that we all swim in. But I am happy to see the ways in which uh, institutions are recognizing it and hearing people like yourself who are just being very very forward and very clear about, you know, every action you take, it's either racist or it's anti-racist. And every day we're making these decisions. It's really wonderful to hear that, of course, at the Robert Blackburn printmaking workshop, of course, too, that that you're thinking very seriously about these things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and, and to some degree, I think that a lot of people, too, it's like, I'm you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed that it had to come to this for it to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you all, everybody knows that it's been happening mm-hmm. for a long time. And it's just embarrassing that it has to come to this and, and before like real change has started. It's a very, it's a very complex th- thing that we've been given time and space to really digest and, and process for sure. Right. Yeah. Especially in the, in the art world. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, just so much, so much of the art world and the collectors and everything are all white. Mm-hmm. I mean, large, large majority of it. Large majority of it, absolutely. Yeah, and, you... and schools. I mean, it's everything. You know. Yeah, it's it's the entire systems, and yeah. um, it's it's a closed loop that feeds itself, and unless you really make a conscious effort to to step out of it, yeah. Um, and I guess speaking of the. Of, of COVID and the ways that it's affected the printmaking workshop. Tell me a little bit about the ways you have been adapting to it. I know you've been doing some online programming, anything that particularly you want to share that maybe people around the world can join in on that they don't necessarily have to be in Hell's Kitchen now. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is a very, you know, a great part about doing online classes is that we realize we're like, Hey, you know, people can, joined in from anywhere. Yeah, so really early on, as soon as it started happening, um, Essie, who's our, who's our programs manager, really like jumped on it and was like, hey, we got to learn to make these digital classes right now. You know, so all of us are just figuring out how to do Zoom mm-hmm. um, and how to make how to have Zoom classes. So we I, I think we, you know, we started we may have even started in March, like right when it hit New York and started doing these online classes and I think we've done maybe it might be like 30 classes now or something like that and in all different techniques but it's definitely challenged us to think like how 
you know, how are we like, what, what kind of things can we teach that people can do at home without a press? And it's actually mm-hmm. been really great, great for me to learn too, because there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that I don't, that I don't know, like a lot of printmaking techniques, like gelatin monotype, um, that, that our, one of our instructors, Elizabeth Castaldo taught, which was, you, you know, you just make a tray of gelatin and paint with ink and then you don't even like the, it transfers so well to make these monotype prints, but then, you know, also like, uh, um, transferring with matte medium. I never knew that you could do that. And yeah, so it's, you know, it's been, it's been great for me as well. And then we've had a lot of people from other countries join in, you know, we usually start off by asking like, Hey, like, where is everybody? And then, you know, there's, there's people from like all over the U S and all different countries, but yeah, that's been really awesome too. Yeah. Beautiful. And then people can find that all on the website. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They can go to, um, if they go to the main, um, EFA website page, it's just efanyc.org and then click on uh, Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop and then online classes. They can see um, the list of all the classes there. You know, we have we were doing a lot for a while, but now we're kind of transitioning into like re- rebuilding and figuring out um, protocol for reopening now. So we're probably going to be doing less classes. I think that the in-person classes are going to be the, like the last thing to reopen just because people need to be in a close proximity and that's what we have to avoid now. We're keeping like the online classes, but then we're going to open the workshop for in-person usage without classes in August. And so I can put a link in the show notes to uh, your website and then of course to the online classes. And so um, people can explore and see if there's anything that they'd, that they would want to, that they'd want to participate in or, you know, just learn a little something more about for sure. Other than, you know, kind of reopening and getting things back on schedule and getting people back in the studio, is there anything particular in the future um, for the printmaking workshop that people can be on the lookout, maybe the next couple of years, or anything on the horizon that you'd particularly want anyone to know about when they hear the podcast? We're going to be working with uh, Ed- Edgar Heap of Birds. Okay, yeah. Um, and doing a series of screen prints with him. Either, I think we're starting this summer, but you know everything kind of got pushed back. It was supposed to be for the whole summer, um, but you know how COVID just threw everything yeah. into craziness. So I think it's going to be like 15 different prints that are coming out. We're also going to be doing a show of Shakaya Booker's work in, at the Plains Museum in North Dakota in 2021. We've worked with her on a number of different like Chincole editions. Exhibition I think is going to start in July 2021. Um, and then there's also, there was supposed to be, I think that there's a lot of work from Robert Blackburn's archive that was supposed to be traveling around with the Smithsonian, but I think that I'm not exactly sure, but keep an eye out for that too. Okay. Yeah, that that, um, that still may happen. Yeah, we haven't heard any any updates, but. Well, so as I said, I'll put the the link to the website in the show notes. Is where else can people find the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop online, and where can people find your own personal work if you've got a, a website you want to direct them to as well? My website is just justinsands.com. Uh, J U S T I N. Sanz.com. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't updated it in a little while, but yeah. maybe this will, this will prompt me to update it some more. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I feel like almost every time I ask an artist for their website on the podcast, it follows up with that something along the lines of, I'm not sure that it's updated, but yeah. <laughs> I think right. often it's the last thing visual artists want to do is, is sit down and do that, that fiddly business. Well, I will put links in the show notes to all of that. And I just want to thank you for, for taking an hour to chat with me and for being such a beautiful wealth of knowledge about Robert Blackburn in the studio. Um, and it was great to chat and, and learn more yeah, about definitely. the printmaking history. So, yeah, I'll be in touch um, uh, with sort of the, the progression of when the podcast will come out. And best of luck with everything, with the, with the reopening. And um, I hope everyone, yeah, stays safe and, and healthy. Great. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much, Justin. I'll talk to you later. All right. All right. Bye. bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week for an episode I am very excited for. Next week marks the beginning of a new regular feature on PCL. Double release episodes in English and Spanish. In collaboration with your friend and mine, Ronaldo Gilzambrano, we'll be bringing you a double feature with Alejandra and Javier, those two crazy cats from Tres Gatos Press in Mexico. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.